guys, Dave here, back with another music review, this time of New Jeans' new single album, OMG. Very excited to talk about this one. I liked it quite a bit, and I think there was a lot of hype for New Jeans, and the fact that they released something again that was really good is awesome. And we get into all that. And I think, you know, we got to start with where New Jeans got to in 2022, the biggest, most successful k-pop debut of last year uh really coming out of nowhere with a four-track ep that made a ton of noise and had a lot of longevity and sold a lot and next thing you know new jeans is the face of fourth generation k-pop off the strength of four tracks it's kind of wild and i like many people had a lot of anticipation for what would be next uh for this group given how big their 2022 was. And obviously, uh, Ador, their label, did not waste any time with getting new music out there. And I think that's great. And obviously, we'll be hotly anticipating the next release from them and and the full-length debut album that we hope is, is soon. But yeah, New Jeans, you know, with that debut EP, Attention and Hype Boy, most specifically, became gigantic tracks. And I think what really stood out about those tracks was that they got a lot of love from their peers, New Jeans peers in the K-pop industry. You would see, you know, veterans covering their songs and doing doing the choreography and stuff. I think that just really speaks to how much uh, love and respect there was for these tracks. And you know, look at the the numbers for Attention and Hype Boy, both over 100 million in Spotify, which goes to show you how successful those songs were in the West. And of course, they were huge in Asia as well. Um, wondering what would be next from them and how long that would be i'm glad we didn't have to think about that too long because ditto and omg these two new songs on the omg single album i think they really continue uh the appeal of the new jeans debut music and that appeal would be that new jeans is giving you a i think a really intriguing sound which is a kind of a throwback almost like 2000s like r&b indebted side of k-pop music and there was definitely a lane or uh, a gap to fill with this kind of music and it's really cool that they have this i think unique uh musical identity already um you know part of that you know is the aesthetic right like the fashion is very like 2000s like y2k stuff but i think to give you this kind of music uh and also how well it's done you know it comes across as very polished and again makes it so impressive that this group, they're all teenagers still, and yet it comes across as so polished, so uh, well done already, really speaks to, I think, why a lot of people are very quickly invested in this group. And, you know, Ditto and OMG, these two new songs, I think really continue uh, that feeling. You know, Ditto is a much more understated uh, track. It's been, you know, called like a wintry single, you know, and I definitely can understand that. Um, and I think it, it sounds good. And What's really cool, I think, about these songs too is the music video concepts are very, very layered and intricate already. Again, just this group seems to be beyond their years already. Um, and OMG, I think, is a big highlight already, really reminiscent of the big hits from last year. You know, I think um, Hani on the chorus is incredibly catchy, sounds amazing. And then even like early on, you know, in like that pre chorus section, the call and response of like the who is he lyrics, I think. Sounds really cool. You watch the video, the choreography again, like the other songs, so incredibly polished, so so catchy. You know, I just really love like what they have going on already. We've only heard six songs from this group. <laughs> That's it. Obviously, we'd love to hear a lot more, um, but I don't know how you can't be uh, on the train at, at this rate. You know, I mean, Hype Boy went on a life of its own throughout all of 2022, and I have a feeling OMG in particular is really going to stick around as like another big banger and like obviously the the first big k-pop song of, of the new year um so hopefully we don't have to wait too long for that new jeans uh full-length album uh, i think you know sonically they're just very intriguing because they seem to be doing stuff that most of their peers aren't doing in terms of the genre choices and then just the overall quality of the music and the polish that these members have uh both in performance and just in song construction. I mean, they're already writing, you know, in in the co-writing process for their music. Again, pretty uncommon for K-pop rookies. That's another great sign. So hopefully we get the debut album soon. And 
I'll definitely be talking about it as soon as it comes up. So if you love new jeans, let me know what you thought of OMG in the comments below. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another review, this time of the musical biopic film, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. And let me tell you, this was a massive disappointment. Oh man. So we've had a lot of high profile music biopics lately. Rocket Man about Elton John, Bohemian Rhapsody about Queen, Respect about Aretha Franklin, and now I Want to Dance with Somebody about Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, once again, another great candidate for a musical biopic film. And this is the first one of these attempts about showing Whitney's life with the blessing of the Whitney Houston estate. So I think there's a lot of eyeballs on this movie. You cast Naomi Ackie, a rising talent, to play Whitney Houston. You decide, I think correctly, to have Aki lip sync as opposed to trying to sing because much like Rami Malek trying to do Freddie Mercury vocals, I think sometimes it's almost better to just let people hear the actual song when the voice was that strong. I'm sure some people would disagree about that, but I don't think that was the problem. The issue with this film is that it is just so uninspired. Uh, it's, like, it's the classic Wikipedia biopic. Let's just go from A to Z. These are the things that happened to Whitney Houston from the start to the end. That's it. And because we're trying to tell the entirety of Whitney Houston's life story in the span of two hours and change, there's no time to sit with anything. And thus, it's all service level. And it's just really disappointing because obviously... Whitney, as an iconic artist, one of the best-selling artists of all time, deserves something a little better than what this movie ended up being. And it's just a, just a disappointment to me. You know, I think uh, Aki, to her credit, was as good as she could be. But again, the script doesn't really do her any favors. I think the strongest parts of the movie are the musical sequences, uh, perhaps un unsurprisingly. But like, you know, seeing the music video for I Want to Know or... Uh, it's not right, but it's okay. Those are really fun sequences. Seeing, you know, Whitney perform at the Super Bowl uh, and some other stuff later in her life as well. Those are good moments in the film. But, man, it's just, we just really just run through so much stuff. And I think if this movie had really any point of view at all and committed to any direction, it would just have been a much stronger film because there's so much right material no matter which way you would have taken that, right? You have Ashton Sanders playing Bobby Brown, Sanders of Moonlight fame. And yet we only see a very one-note performance from Sanders. We only see Bobby Brown as the bad boy. We don't see the other side of Bobby Brown, which was the fact that Whitney Houston was in a relationship with him for several years, and they had good times as well. Not that there's anything wrong with portraying Brown as a bad influence on Whitney Houston. I think we everyone would agree about that. But like, we really just only jump in and check in on that relationship when it's a negative, right? Uh, also, there's lots of nods to, did Whitney Houston sell out to white America to become a pop superstar? Uh, is she uh, making music for the black community? Uh, is Whitney Houston black enough? That kind of stuff, right? You even have Stanley Tucci as Clive Davis, the record exec, you know, suggesting that if, Whitney wants to switch up her sound. You know, L.A. Reid and Babyface are cooking it up right now. We can work with them. Guess what? She does work with them. But the movie doesn't tell you about that. Like, Whitney's opinion on almost anything that, like, comes up is, like, barely expressed in the movie. It's so frustrating. And I, I just wish there was really anything cool about this, right? Like, at least Rocket Man, which uh, probably is a bit more polarizing overall. I liked Rocket Man a lot. I thought Rocket Man was cool because it was inspired visually and had these like dream sequences and was a bit abstract, right? That was really fun. But I want to dance with somebody. Again, it doesn't get into anything thematically beyond the surface and is so by the numbers from a filmmaking perspective that there's just not a lot to recommend about it. Is it entertaining enough? Sure. I mean, I think the Whitney story is is this that undeniable that just being with Whitney Houston, even at a surface level way, is still 
still good. It's still better than nothing. But we really just deserve something better. And honestly, I would lay the blame with Anthony McCartan, who wrote this screenplay. Uh, that's a name that should ring a bell because he also wrote Bohemian Rhapsody. And not that he hasn't had success with other movies, but I think we need to keep musical biopics away from this guy because he's just not uh, doing enough to, to to elevate these films. And it's really a big, a big distraction. So, yeah, I'd say um, check it out if you're into I- interested. Um, Aki's good, but and Tucci's pretty good as well. But like, couldn't help at the end, but just be like, ah, I just want to listen to some Whitney Houston songs right now and not really think about this movie again because it just makes you want to read Wikipedia and get even more detail. So, let me know what you thought. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a movie review this time. Babylon, Damien Chazelle back four year wait between his last film, First Man, to now. Babylon's here, polarizing film, big budget, poor box office. There's a lot of talk about this movie. I'm going to get into all of that. I'll just say right off the bat, I did like the movie quite a bit, actually, but there's so much to get into with this one. Uh, it's long, it's indulgent, it's excessive. There are gross-out moments. There are uh, unsettling moments. Definitely not a movie for everybody. But I really <clears throat> enjoyed the movie, despite its faults. It definitely has faults, but I quite enjoyed it a lot. Um, obviously, I had a lot of hype for this going in because I think Damien Chazelle's run to this point speaks for itself. Whiplash, La La Land, First Man really strong start to a career. Obviously, he was the youngest Best Director winner uh, years back with La La Land. And when you have a movie starring Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt, um, two of the you know last movie stars, at least they have the star qualities we ascribe to movie stars, even if the box office doesn't follow these days with adult movies usually. Um, obviously, a lot of anticipation. And this one, you know, the extravagance of the budget, a period piece, uh, a story about the transition in Hollywood from silent films to the talkies in the 1920s sounds really exciting, especially if you're a film fan. And I think the best moments of this movie really just kind of speak to, I think, that brilliance that Giselle has demonstrated as a director, which is he is someone who has a really strong grasp on the technical craft that comes to movies and like having that vision. And some of these sequences just really, really sing. And I mean, he's collaborating once again with Justin Hurwitz on the score. God, this, the score is incredible, really uplifts the movie, really propels the film. And the acting is really strong as well. And I think where this movie probably loses some people is uh, partially its length. You know, it's well over three hours. And I think the emotional moments that really start to fall in in, into place in the back half of the movie, those probably land to varying degrees, depending on the viewer, depending on the character they're involved with. So it's a, a bit of a mixed bag, perhaps, the way it concludes. But I think some of the, the really strong moments, especially towards the beginning, like these these series of set pieces, are, are just dynamite sequences, some of the best things I've seen uh, this year on screen. And I think it'll just go down like sequence by sequence, character by character, because there's a lot to get into. I think uh, right off the bat, you know, probably the most famous, like, iconic stuff people probably are aware of with this movie, of course, is uh, the big, crazy Bacchanal, the, the big party on the, the, the hill back when the Hollywood Hills were hardly developed at all. Uh, that sequence is crazy. It's super long. It's effectively a cold open. You don't see the Babylon flash across the title. Uh, the, the Babylon title flash across the screen until you're like 30 minutes into the movie because you watch this extended rager slash orgy slash uh, drug den. <laughs> There's a lot going on there, and that's crazy. You know, I think notably, I didn't actually notice this myself. I saw someone else point this out. None of the main characters are actually shown having sex. It's just extras, but trust me, you see plenty of extras having sex, especially at this scene. Tons of drugs, literally mounds of cocaine. It's crazy. There's a honestly hilarious gross-out moment regarding an elephant very early in the movie that I thought was really funny, but obviously that is another sequence or mo- brief moment that's not for everyone. But, you know, with this party on the hill, you get introduced to really the, the, the core of your cast. Uh, Margot Robbie plays Nellie, Ro- Ro- Nellie Leroy, an inspiring actress who has this undeniable uh, quality to her, really like a, 
textbook it girl, basically, ingenue type. Uh, Brad Pitt shows up as well as Jack Conrad, supposed to invoke like a Clark Gable type persona. He's a you know established you know silent film star and then we meet like the 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 new face who's like our audience avatar in a sense would be diego calva as manny who's a aspiring hollywood worker trying to make his way in the industry and he's like a gopher like fixer type in the beginning right off the bat you meet them and you meet some of the other supporting characters as well and you know i think that that bacchanal party scene is just a lot of fun uh, and a great way to really meet these characters. I think that that's a clear highlight of the movie. And then I think right after that, very quickly, we get into maybe the best sequence in the movie. Um, I think definitely like the most like movie magic sequence, which would be Nellie has made her way into the industry, has been given a part, and it's like her first day on set, basically. And at the same time, you have Jack also on set, this big uh, like blockbuster a production like a costume drama and nelly just kind of like lights up the screen and everyone's like obsessed with her in the film and of course it's margot robbie doing this so it's like actually real actually dynamite because she's just like that electric of a performer and this sequence is intersplicing between the moments of Nellie literally like turning off her ability to cry and just like being this amazing actor and everyone being obsessed with this newfound talent, intersplicing that with Manny's like quest to get a new replacement camera so that they can film uh, the last sequence they need for Jack's movie before the sun sets and they lose the shot. You know, in that sequence, you have Spike Jones kind of cameoing as this like German director directing Jack's movie. You have these hilarious moments with all these extras that are like, you know, like soldiers in, in the film. And these are extras played by people from Skid Row in Los Angeles. And they're wanting to strike and, uh, you know, revolt, uh, you know, as <laughs> pro labor people would. And you know, Manny has to basically like stomp that out in like a really funny fashion. And it just kind of like, I think really like comes together and like, is a really magical, really fun sequence. And at that point I was like, the movie's like really ripping. And I'm like really loving it, you know, and <laughs> I think uh, the movie starts to get longer, right? Like there's there, there perhaps are some predictable beats, right? It's it's very much a rise and fall type thing, or in the case of Jack falling from the top, and I think from from this point on, the next best sequence would be when we've made the transition from silent film to uh, talkies to to movies with sound, and it becomes clear to everyone in the film that sound is the future. Sound is now. Sound needs to happen. And there's just an amazing scene featuring Nelly, uh, really for the first time, acting with sound, having to hit her marks. And everyone in the production, you know, on this uh, uh, backlot uh, soundstage space, losing their minds over the inability to record with with good sound. As, as a podcaster, I could definitely relate to this struggle. And... You have PJ Byrne as the assistant director in that scene, blowing his top and just losing his mind and cursing out everyone in hilarious fashion. And then you have that pure euphoria when they finally pull off a successful film sequence with sound, with no like sound issues, no problems. And it's just funny because it's only like 20 minutes of, of, of actual like filmed scene and it took them that long. But like another moment where it's like the scene is just played to such a fine tune that you're just loving the ride and like when when they have that jubilation of pulling off the, the filming you're like super into it too all that stuff all these like these big sequences in the early on the first half of the movie i love this stuff i think where the movie starts to i guess really change what the movie is is about and probably where it might start to lose some people is what happens after this where you know jack as a silent actor is really Realizing his relevance is uh, waning and also his ability to act, uh, not just act uh, uh, with presence, but also act by speaking. He realizes he perhaps doesn't have as much talent in the new era as he did in the old era. And that becomes a present to him, present to other people. Um, you know, Nellie is a complicated figure who has some personal vices and things start to catch up to her. And you can start to see like where it's going to go. And I think probably the issue... Uh, that some people would have and I, I was able to overlook this but i can definitely understand the point of view the issue would be that i just 
you maybe don't spend like enough time like with Nelly and Jack's like true emotions. We're almost, you're almost like more there having things happen to them, and it doesn't really come together until the very end with Jack's character in terms of uh, how he feels about things. And I do think the way his character wraps up uh, its role in, in the story of Babylon works well. But the problem, though, with all of this is that you really sideline uh, Diego Calvo's Manny character. Manny ultimately is a really thankless role in the movie. And Manny is supposed to carry a lot of emotional weight and like the journey he goes on, which is quite quite up and down over the course of Babylon over the over the years. The journey doesn't land as well as it should because you're just not given enough time with Manny. Manny's not given enough meaningful things to do. And the movie would probably be better if it just wasn't quite as overstuffed because there are other, I think, important characters in this movie. I haven't even mentioned. You have Yovan Adepo as Sidney Palmer, a jazz trumpeter, who kind of becomes like a star trumpet player in the movies with the help of Manny and his role in Hollywood what he has to encounter and decisions he makes as a character it is completely underserved because he's not given enough time and that's obviously unfortunate because uh sydney is a black character in a time where that obviously was very challenging uh you know with, with filming you know this is this is both pre haze code hollywood but still obviously very segregated and, and a racist place and racist time um similarly you have lee jun lee as lady feiju who is like a cabaret singer and like works like behind the scenes uh, with the studio as well. Pretty obvious analog to like anime Wong uh, in real life. Another character that makes a great, pre- uh, great presence and impression when given things to do, but ultimately is not given enough things to do. And it's almost used at the end of the movie to serve Jack's character's needs. And ultimately you're just a bit overstuffed with the ideas and the character plots that are trying to be thread here that it doesn't all quite land as well as you'd want it to and probably should have eliminated some of these to make everything sing but i think the reason why i'm still overall a fan of the movie is i think like i said there's just a few sequences that are truly undeniable and just a blast to be with and then even if like the emotional stuff with the back half of the movie is up and down it becomes quite obvious that the story of babylon Giselle is presenting this as a also commentary on the state of Hollywood today and how filmmaking works. And you have this extended outro um, visual sequence that Manny observes at the end of the movie. Uh, We literally see frames of singing in the rain, which is an obvious analog and kind of like hangs over this whole story. Like all that stuff. I, I, really responded to i think like the meta the meta nature of like damien chazelle perhaps making the last expensive adult movie he would ever have the chance to make as these movies seem increasingly difficult to pull off financially uh in today's climate as adult films continue to struggle at the box office and uh the streaming money is definitely drying up to a certain degree thinking about all that like oh this is like damien chazelle really went for it at the end here you know, 80 million budget, period drama, doesn't really play to general audiences. And he said, fuck it. He, he threw everything in here. And I re- definitely really respect that, especially when you're doing it with, with people as talented as Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt. You know, it certainly could be way worse. So I think it really depends, you know, like like what you're looking for with this, because it, like I said, it's overstuffed and not everything lands as well as it should, but certain things do land. So you know, as the Rotten Tomatoes score suggests, polarizing film. It's very uh, up and down reception with this one. And, you know, I think that's okay. You know, Chazelle has made a bunch of bangers already. It's okay to release something that has lots of great qualities, but not everyone likes that. No worries there. And ultimately, like, like Robbie and Pitt acquitted themselves very well. You know, I wouldn't really put the box office with this movie on any, any on, on anyone's blame. You know, just the way this movie needed to succeed, which is very, uh, slim chances, honestly. So, yeah, I mean, we'll see with the Oscars. You know, it, it, Babylon actually did pretty well with the uh, the shortlist for some of the technical categories. So we'll see how far uh, this movie can go. You know, um, Chazelle, though, to his credit, 
re-upped with a new Paramount deal under the new leadership. Of course, Babylon had been financed and greenlit under old leadership there. So Paramount, you know, coming off Top Gun Maverick, got some money in their pockets. They're like, you know, we still want to be in the Damien Chazelle business. So that's obviously really heartwarming because he's a very talented person. Um, And yeah, I think Babylon, there is a lot to chew on, a lot to sit with in this movie. There is a out of nowhere 20 minute sequence featuring Tobey Maguire that feels like it's in a different movie. And some people love that sequence and some people absolutely hate that sequence. Um, I love that it was in the movie, uh, but I totally get that that's not going to land for everyone too. There's a lot to this one. So I would definitely say you got to see it and you got to find a way to figure out how you feel about it because I definitely have many thoughts as well. So let me know what you thought about Babylon. Uh, Are you excited for the next Chazelle movie? Do you think this will be good at the Oscars? Leave a comment below. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of White Noise, Noah Baumbach's new movie for Netflix, his third Netflix film, first since Marriage Story, once again reuniting with Adam Driver and, of course, his partner Greta Gerwig back in the acting role as well alongside Driver. This is a movie that had a lot of anticipation, a lot of hype, because it's adaptation of a acclaimed Don DeLillo novel that notably was deemed unfilmable, unadaptable, and Bombac took that Netflix bag and said, let me adapt this thing, and you got to respect that. And I think it's a movie that works in some ways, doesn't work in other ways. I notably have not read the novel, so I don't have as like specific reverence for the source material as many others do but I can still see plenty of faults in the film, although I think there are some some qualities to it, some highlights to it. I think broadly, I enjoyed two-thirds of the movie, basically the first two acts, and then White Noise kind of lost me at the end there. Um, I think it's a really effective movie at presenting, I think, the, the early themes of the novel as far as i understand you know act one you're really satirizing like academia satirizing like the university system with uh, adam driver's character jack gladney as a professor at this college teaching hitler studies uh it's like really ridiculous and on the nose but also super funny um there's an amazing scene that driver shares alongside don Cheadle, another fellow professor where they kind of go back and forth lecturing to a classroom about uh, Driver going off on Hitler and then Cheadle's character going off on Elvis, a class he wants to teach, kind of molding an Elvis studies class off of what Jack uh, teaches about uh, Hitler. It's pretty crazy, but like the filmmaking in that scene as the camera moves and the, the two performances from Driver and Cheadle are like, really cool. And, like That's like an amazing like sequence in the film. I think if there was more stuff like that, I think people would really like it. I think the issue with the movie is that I think the, the thematic through lines of what this is supposed to get at in terms of, I think, a pretty like layered comment on uh, consumerism and uh, meaning uh, in your day-to-day life and things like that, it just doesn't feel like the movie comes together around that message. By the end, I honestly was left quite wanting with where you're left with, with our two main characters, you know, Driver and Gerwig, like where they end up, it just doesn't feel satisfying. It doesn't feel super uh, earned or uh, it's not even like it's not earned. It's just that like, I just don't think it's communicated like the like realizations and like epiphanies that those characters have had to the audience. It just doesn't come across effectively enough. Um, but, you know, that first act, like I said, before things really pop off, it's a lot of fun. Looks great too. I think like aesthetically, with the camera in this like 1980s setting, it's really enjoyable to look at. Right, uh, the the family, the Gladney family, all those kids are are quite enjoyable as well. And then once the uh, kind of inciting incident in the film, the conflict, the uh, uh, airborne toxic event, as it's dubbed, that uh, actually like was really cool and kind of like lends itself as you go to act two into like this kind of like Steven Spielbergian-esque like Amblin uh, adventure sequence, chase sequence as the family is fleeing their town alongside everyone else in town to avoid this uh, noxious plume in the sky. From what I understand, that is an event in the book that's a lot more uh, 
abstract and less clearly defined on the page. But I thought it was actually quite effective to see like the realization of this like massive like toxic cloud in the sky. Maybe like gives you a bit of like a Stranger Things vibe these days. But I, don't know, I thought that was actually pretty effective. And the uh, family kind of going through their uh, trials and tribulations as Jack tries at every corner to avoid acknowledging that things are going wrong is actually pretty fun, you know. And then you can't help but notice like the obvious like COVID allegory regarding uh you know masking and quarantining and how the characters feel about what's happening regarding this toxic event obviously that's stuff from the book it's not written for covid but it's so so easy to read it uh through a modern lens after everything the world has experienced um you know uh i guess it's notable that this is a like the first movie noah bomb actually adapted it's not his original material um you know and like just taking that netflix bag you know netflix once again, giving an auteur money to take a huge swing, very similar to Inaritu's Bardo that we just got. And obviously it doesn't seem like Netflix is in the business of funding these kinds of movies going forward, but, you know, hats off the bomb back for trying because I do think it was a, a noble effort for sure. But the Danny Elfman score w- was quite effective uh, throughout the movie. You know, I think I just really really get lost in, in, in act three when it gets more like metaphysical and in the mind of Jack and Babette Gerwig's character. Like I just didn't fully connect with like the struggle those characters were having in terms of finding meaning and purpose in their lives. I just don't think it's communicated well enough. Uh, you know, there's fun stuff on the, on the ancillary uh, periphery of the story some of the other professor characters played by andre 3000 and joey turner smith and of course Cheadle, who has the most to do out of all of them quite fun you have a brief bill camp cameo as someone you know pushing back against the uh, uh the quarantining if you will like all that's fun i just don't think the the ending especially once we get to this uh the sequence in the hotel the sequence in a like a Nun hospital type setting clinic, all of that just really kind of fades away to me. It just feels so different from the start of the movie, right? And I think ultimately that's why this movie has been quite polarizingly received, is that it feels like a lot of disparate parts. And there's things that are recommended about it, things that are well done about it, but it just doesn't fully come together for what it's going for. But not a total failure either. Again, I have not read the book, so I don't have as uh, fondness or reverence for the source material as others do. It is obviously an acclaimed, you know, American novel at this point. But you know, all things considered, I think it was decent, decent effort for something that clearly was uh, hard to pin down, hard to adapt. Like I think that much is obvious with the thematic uh, richness and variety that White Noise is trying to communicate. So let me know what you thought. Have you read the novel? Did you think it sucked? Did you love it? probably somewhere in between. Let me know. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Whale, the new Darren Aronofsky movie starring Brendan Fraser. Man, been a while since Aronofsky has been in our lives. Mother was, what, 2017? Been a minute. Uh, polarizing filmmaker with amazing highs and amazing lows in his career, without question. But of course, I think the star of the show, when it comes to everything, The Whale has been Brendan Fraser because this is the you know, the capstone of the Brendan Fraser renaissance that started probably four or five years ago with smaller roles and some TV work as well. But he's getting a lot of uh, best actor plaudits for his role in this new film. And we can get into his performance. If the movie's actually any good, awards chances at the Oscars. And yeah, all that. Um, yeah, so The Whale's been kind of rolling out limited release and... I think it's uh, on its face a super flawed movie with some great performances in it. So I think it's worth a watch to see the performances, but the movie really doesn't land in the emotional way it's hoping to. And I think you know it's I don't I want to call it like a huge miss though. Like it's a bit of a swing I guess from Aronofsky because ultimately he is just adapting the Samuel D. Hunter stage play, 
Hunter uh, reworked the screenplay for the film, and the movie very much comes across as a staged adaptation. You're largely doing everything and seeing everything in the confines of Frazier's character, Charlie's apartment. Really only in this apartment, and really the, the apartment's living room more often than not. So it definitely comes across staged. But ultimately, emotionally, the melodrama of the whale is uh, just a bit lackluster, or I guess a bit a bit simple and straightforward, thus it doesn't really land in the gravitas that Aronofsky's probably trying to go for. Uh, Charlie is a morbidly obese person, and it's a movie that makes that painstakingly clear at almost all aspects of the storytelling, because the movie is almost shot and staged in a like body horror-esque way, where Charlie is presented via various angles and just the way like the camera fixates on him, that you're really sitting there and being sad, taking pity on this person who has, through extreme grief, uh, binge ate his way to really the end of his life. We're at a stage where Charlie's health is declining due to his just massive weight. And there's been a lot of uh, talk and controversy around Brendan Fraser wearing a fat suit and being under heavy prosthetic to portray this character and whether this movie's uh, portrayal of obese people is uh, kind and, and all that. There's been a lot of good uh, writing about, about about that topic. And I definitely thought it, it was a bit challenging at times to, to sit with that because the film doesn't shy away from the flaws, the faults of Charlie as a character, uh, but also points out that he's a very positive person in, in, in terms of what, how he interacts with other people, other characters he meets over the course of the film. But you can't help but feel like the movie's point of view on Charlie is at least a little bit negative. Um, hard to say. I think that's probably up for, up for interpretation. Leave a comment. Let me know how you felt about how that went. Um, thankfully, the whale is largely saved uh, at least best as it can be, due to all these performances. I think Frasier, despite, you know, we talk about this a lot with awards movies, whether it's someone portraying a real-life person with a lot of prosthetics, whatever it is, prosthetics, perhaps a bit of cheating when it comes to uh, awards uh, plaudits. That being said, I think Frasier is really good. He really comes across uh, in an emotional manner. And I think the faults of the emotional beats in the film is really more screenplay based than anything to do with the performances. But I think Frazier just has a warmth to his character, a humanity to his character. And I think the, the grace that he brings to the role of Charlie is probably the best case uh, that you could use against the, you know, negative uh, perception that some people might have of how this character is portrayed in the movie. Anyway, uh, there's also a great performance by Hong Chao as his friend Liz, who is a uh, friend, a nurse friend of his that comes in and kind of like checks his blood pressure and also brings him food and stuff like that. And uh, you know, Hong Chao, amazing here, honestly. She was a total scene stealer in the menu. She was note perfect in that movie. Completely different role uh, in The Whale, but it's a very strong performance. You could easily see it as a supporting actress uh, nomination. It was that good. Um, and there's a key emotional moment that she like really nails, and it's actually, I think, one of the most poignant moments in the whole movie. Uh, you also have uh, Charlie's daughter, Ellie, played by Sadie Sink of Stranger Things fame. And I think Sadie is all right in this movie. It's a bit of a one-note performance and feels a bit familiar to the uh, stuff you expect from her on Stranger Things. So maybe the Sadie Sink range... Uh, as an actor, is still yet to be determined. She's still quite young, obviously. We'll see. But I think she, she's good enough as Ellie. You know, this rebellious, also resentful uh, teenage character. It's all right. There's also a missionary, a, a young teenage missionary figure that uh, continues to visit Charlie and tries to save his soul. I think that's kind of like where I kind of brush up against a lot of the stuff with this movie. Is I think just the melodrama between Charlie being an absent father and this missionary figure who's trying to save him and you know there's some even some like sexual uh sexuality uh, brought into this uh charlie as, as a gay man uh revealed right away in the film 
I just don't know if there's anything like beyond the surface with any of that over the course of the whale. So I did find the ending a bit frustrating. It's a bit abrupt uh, for 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 my taste. Uh, but yeah, I think it's worth the price of admission for the acting. And if Frazier was to win for best actor, you know, he's probably him versus uh, Colin Farrell and Banshee's Finn Sheeran right now. I think it's a just win, and I mean, part of that is like the narrative is so good. Obviously, Frazier having this long road after what he went through, this long road back to Hollywood, and this feels like kind of like the reaching of the mountaintop with a truly celebrated performance. And if that, that wins Best Actor, I think that's as good a reason as any to win it. So we'll be see about that. He's a lot to be nominated for sure. We'll see about if Chow uh, gets in as well. But yeah, let me know what you thought of The Whale. Did you think The Whale worked for you? Was it just an acting showcase for you only? Leave a comment below. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here talking 2023 TV shows. The most anticipated shows of the year. There's a lot of them. We just had an amazing TV year in 2022. A lot of big, high-profile shows, big surprises, shows people loved. And... I think 2023 is going to be really good as well. I'm going to get into all those shows that I'm really excited about, both returning series as well as brand new stuff, franchise IP stuff, original stuff, more adult stuff, quite the range. You know, a lot's been made about the economic downturn affecting the streamers and the studios and the entertainment industry. There is going to be a slowdown in content spending, but I don't think we're going to feel those effects on the TV front in 2024. There will be a slowdown in terms of just the, you know, amount of shows made. You're seeing shows at Warner Brothers Discovery specifically being unrenewed, being uh, canceled after being renewed, right? A lot, a lot of news about that. But there's just so much stuff still in the pike being made or in the process of, of being made or being written that we're going to still have tons of stuff to be excited about in 2023. And maybe in the future, we will start to really notice the that the peak of peak TV has happened. But we're not going to feel that just yet. That being said, before I get into all the stuff I'm excited about in 2023, I think it's really important to note there are several high-profile shows that will not be back in 2023. Shows people loved from the past year, a lot of big, high-profile stuff. And let's run through them real quick. Euphoria, Industry, Andor, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, House of the Dragon, Stranger Things, The Boys, The White Lotus, Squid Game, Black Mirror, as well as Dune the Sisterhood, which is a brand new series. None of those shows are coming out in 2023. They're all either not in production yet, don't have an announced production date yet, or some of them are in production or going into soon, but have really long you know, post-productions due to the uh, length of you know, uh, CGI creation and whatnot. So we're not going to get any of those shows. And people love those shows, myself included. I'll be very excited to get probably almost all those shows in 2024, which would be very exciting. That being said, what we are getting this year uh, will be just fine. We got a lot of good stuff. And I think you have to start on the returning series front with the best show of 2021, Succession, back for season four in the spring. HBO has already confirmed. Obviously, we can't wait for that. But there's a lot of, I think, big stuff coming out this year that, that we've seen before. Obviously, The Mandalorian, March 1st, Loki, uh Soon after, Disney has two, I think, big hitters there. Uh, Star Wars Vision Season 2, probably less uh, remarked upon, but also IP, right? Um, what We Do in the Shadows, Ted Lasso Season 3 after a long production will be back. Only Murders in the Building Season 3, Hack Season 3, Perry Mason Season 2 after a long wait, back on HBO, Yellow Jacket Season 2, uh, True Detective Season 4. A lot of big stuff there, you know, HBO uh, dominating as usual. Uh, Severance. Season 2, Barry, Season 4, uh, Tokyo Vice, Season 2, probably. Not positive about that one. It is in production. Winning Time, Season 2 on HBO. The final season of Marvel's Mrs. Maisel, Season 5 on Amazon. Uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of big stuff, a lot of shows that people have at least loved in the past, right? Uh, we get a lot of attention out of all that. The Bear, probably the biggest, out of nowhere surprise, of 2022, was made in 2022 and put out, right? It's a lot. Uh, it's just slower, po- uh, quicker post production than obviously a big IP show. So there's a chance that the bear will come out next year. It's going into production in February for season two. So we'll cross our fingers on that one. Uh, also, Fargo will be back for season five, but 
that's in production through the end of April. So I don't think that's a lock. I guess in theory that could go through post and come out in the fall. We'll see if that happens at FX. I'm not sure. Similarly, For All Mankind, season four has been in production, I think, since the tail half of last year. But, you know, there, there's some effects on that Apple series. So we'll see. But I think that's a lot of like big, high profile series stuff people like. So that's all pretty exciting. Um, in terms of new series, obviously on the IP front, everything is like kind of familiar, right? Like Ahsoka is new, but it's Mandalorian spinoff series. So very excited about that. The continuation of the Star Wars Rebels uh, story, we assume. On the MCU front, obviously Loki is coming back for season two. But other than that, there's a bunch of, you know, brand new, quote unquote, new series or, or limited series from Marvel. Secret Invasion, Ironheart, Echo, and Agatha coven of chaos i'm not really super excited about any of those series per se i guess secret invasion could be fun Ironheart, i have an open mind about it. i like dominic thorne's performance in wakanda forever loki's obviously the heavy hitter there uh we'll wait and see i think there's a bit of marvel fatigue setting in on the tv front given the very up and down quality of those series to this point so we'll see uh how that goes when those shows come out um I think more exciting than any of the Marvel shows would be the boys spinoff on Amazon, the boys diabolical. This is the boys spinoff series about superheroes going to superhero college, which sounds like an amazing setting for the world of the boys. Can't wait for that. Also technically a new series coming out very soon on HBO will be the last of us, which is a brand new series, but of course an adaptation of the famous PlayStation video game series. And I think just the, the pedigree that we're going to see from The Last of Us being created and, and show ran by Craig Mazin coming off Chernobyl and starring Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. Just very exciting. The trailer looks very strong. Can't wait for that. Um, other new series that we're getting that's you know not really IP, but a lot of these are adaptations. You have, I think, very excitingly on uh, FX on Hulu, a show I've been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, it's been announced a few years back at this point, which would be the adaptation limited series of Shogun, the uh, 1975 James Clavell novel that's starring Cosmo Jarvis, Hiroki Sanada, and Anna Sawai. And that, from everything I know about that show, it sounds uh, really exciting, you know, as a, uh, as a period show. Um, you know, FX has such an amazing track record that you have to believe in their ambition when it comes to tackling something so so big like that. So I really can't wait for that one. We don't have a date on that just yet. Uh, we do have a date, though, end of January, for Poker Face, a Peacock uh, comedy series created by Ryan Johnson starring Natasha Leone, which is a uh, case of the week mystery comedy drama series. Looks like it's going to have uh, lots of like you know cameos, you know one episode appearances from big name actors. Obviously, I think everyone's on the Ryan Johnson train at this point with uh, how Knives Out has been going. And Tasha Leone uh, has been on a big heater as well with the two seasons of Russian Doll. So very ex excited about this one. Also, uh, I don't, we don't really know too much about it, but Mrs. Davis is a new series for Peacock as well, starring Betty Gilpin. And is you know, coming from Damon Lindelof, one of the greatest TV creators of all time, NBD. Huge get for Peacock. Very excited to see that, obviously. Uh we also have for HBO in association with H24, uh, The Sympathizer, which is a uh, adaptation of a novel as well from Park Chan-wook coming off Decision to Leave, his last film from last year, Vietnam War period series starring Robbie Downey Jr. and Sandra Oh, NBD. And it'd be nice to see uh, RDJ uh, back working again. Also for HBO Max, we have Full Circle, which is a new series from Steven Soderbergh with... Uh, Sazzy Beats and uh, Claire Danes, among others. Very excited about that one. Um, you know, Soderbergh, he's working. He's been working for HBO for a few years now at this point. Anything he makes, you got to watch. People know that at this point. Uh, something we've known about for quite some time, coming out uh, sometime in March, we don't have the date yet, is The White House Plumbers, which is a limited series on HBO about Watergate with Justin Thoreau. Sounds awesome. Uh, and the trailer looks good. Also at HBO, no date yet, would be uh, Sam Levinson's new series, The Idol, starring The Weeknd and Lily Rose Depp. You know, we don't get Euphoria this year, but Levinson did make a whole other show. Trailer looks pretty interesting. 
you have Jenny Kim from Blackpink in a supporting role. Uh, definitely excited about that. I think that Levin's in brand, uh, perhaps polarizing, but definitely uh, interesting and worth checking out. Can't wait for the idol. Um, I guess a pseudo uh, sequel series for Apple something coming sometime this year is Masters of the Air, which is the you know Band of Brothers, the Pacific, like third follow-up in that entry of World War II uh, series, this time, uh, as the name might suggest, about pilots in the Air Force. So that sounds pretty exciting. Uh, you know that'll be awesome. And that, that, that's uh, notably on Apple this time around, not on HBO. Um, also on Apple, we have Godzilla and the Titans, a legendary monster verse going to the small screen. Um, Apple dropping the bag. That's definitely an expensive show, but could perhaps get up there as one of the biggest and most well-liked uh, IP series of the year because, it, you know, the, the legendary monster verse has been going strong and Godzilla versus Kong was a big hit back in 2020. Uh, or 2021, sorry. Three-Body Problem on Netflix. Definitely will get a lot of eyes. I don't know how good it'll be, but high-profile adaptation from none other than Benioff and Weiss, their first series, their first work on their Netflix deal, their first big thing together after Game of Thrones. Obviously, a lot of people will be curious how that one goes. That is a series that recently also got adapted for Tencent over in China, so I'll be curious how people who have seen both feel about uh, each series. Uh, Netflix is also giving us Avatar The Last Airbender, the live-action adaptation, which we've known about for some time. I think everyone's kind of waiting with bated breath for that because, obviously, their Cowboy Bebop uh, adaptation, live-action, didn't go too well. Neither has really any of their other anime movies they've done live-action. And also because you know Avatar Studios over at Paramount is making more sequel series and movies regarding... Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra, uh, you know, those are coming. So unless this live action series is like really well liked and done really well, I have a feeling it'll be rejected by the uh, fervent Last Airbender fan base that we know is out there. So kind of waiting with bated breath for that one. We'll see. I'm not too sure. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably like what, like 50 shows, you know, right there, more than most people will watch. You know, I certainly won't watch everything I just listed, but it's a lot of big stuff, right? A lot of big IP stuff, a lot of big newer stuff from people you trust, like FX and HBO and even Apple at this stage. So we'll see, you know, and of course, I'm sure there will be stuff that we're not thinking about that will show up and surprise us the way the bear did in 2022. So, you know, let me know what series are you most excited for? What series are you not looking forward to at all? Uh, in 2023 and which 2024 show do you wish was coming sooner because they're hard to wait for leave a comment below and for more tv reviews make sure you subscribe see you next time